morning, everyone. I'm so glad to be with you this morning and to talk about this new series that we're introducing to you guys this morning called Dark Horses. And it's the idea that we are looking at the lives of people in Scripture who have stories of triumph and comebacks that can be really inspiring. The truth is, Scripture is made up of a ton of different dark horses, people who unexpectedly rise to the occasion and are used by God in really powerful ways. The Bible is the living Word of God, which means it connects with each of us individually. And that's why these stories of people just like you and me can be so powerful and so inspiring for us to live out our faith in a bold way. I think deep down, all of us would love to have a dark horse story of our own. We would love to have a life that surprises those who maybe have doubted us or those who are around us on a day-to-day basis. A life that stands out, a life that is filled with purpose and power. I remember when I was in high school and I started to take my faith seriously, I just really wanted to have this deep, de- had this deep desire within me to have purpose, to have a life that actually mattered. And I couldn't help but feel like I was just some awkward 16-year-old, <laughs> not very noticeable. How was I supposed to make an impact? How is my life supposed to matter? I desperately wanted to have purpose. And so what I did was I read my Bible, and I looked for a person or a story that would encourage me. And one person in particular stood out to me. Her name is Esther. For being honest, there are not very many young women that are highlighted in Scripture. And seeing somebody who was like me stood up and stood up for her, her faith and beliefs was incredibly inspiring. So Esther's Dark Horse story is its own book of the Bible, and it's found within the Old Testament. And before we get into the story today, I want to introduce you to a few of the main characters that we'll be talking about just to get us prepared to hear the story. So the first person that we're going to talk about, her name is Esther, obviously. And she's a young woman who is orphaned at a young age, and she is raised by her uncle. Now the second person is her uncle, Mordecai, is a devout Jew and is the one who raised Esther. The third person is King Xerxes, which was a Persian king who reigned from about 485 B.C. to 465 B.C. And lastly, we have a man named Haman, who was King Xerxes' right-hand man. And he hated the Jews, particularly Mordecai, and wanted them all destroyed. So we see Esther living in Susa. This is the Persian capital at the crossroads of significant military, political, and cultural importance of the time. And it was governed by this King Xerxes that we keep talking about. And she's living amongst these displaced Jews that were forced into exile by the Babylonians in 586 B.C., And at this point in time, a lot of the Jewish people were allowed to return home to Jerusalem, but there were also many who had remained where they were and still were living in Babylonian territory. So what we're going to be doing is going through a summary or a synopsis of the the entire book of Esther. And what I would strongly encourage you to do is take time to read the book for yourself. Because as you can imagine, giving you a summary of an entire book of the Bible, we're going to be going a little bit fast today. And I don't want you guys to miss out on the beauty of what this book has to offer. And so uh, I think you're going to really enjoy the message and this uh, this, uh, story today, but you're going to have to buckle up a little bit and track with me here, okay? Are you ready? 
Yeah? Okay. So we're going to start in chapters 1 through 3, and the book begins with the king throwing two feasts that last a total of 187 days. That's a really long party. And the purpose of this feast was to celebrate himself and to allow a chance for everyone else to honor him. And during this, the last night of this feast, he decides that it would be a great idea for his wife to come out and display her body in provocative clothing. And as you can imagine, his wife wasn't too thrilled with that idea and decided to say no. And he didn't like that and decided to divorce her and banish her from the kingdom. And so that's how the story starts. And so we find King Xerxes very lonely because he doesn't have a wife anymore. And so the search goes out for the 100 most beautiful women to be brought in and, dis- and uh, taken care of to be presented to the king to find a new wife. Basically, a beauty pageant. Esther is one of these women, and Mordecai, her uncle, encourages her to conceal her Jewish identity as a way of protecting herself. So the women take an entire year to prepare themselves to be presented to the king. That's pretty crazy. That's a long time of beauty treatments and pedicures. But when they're presented to the king, the king falls madly in love and is infatuated with Esther and decides to marry her on the spot. And while this is all happening, Mordecai is outside the gates pacing back and forth, praying for Esther, praying for her protection, when he overhears some of the guards conspiring to kill the king. And so what he does is he alerts Esther about this problem. She alerts the king and ends up saving the king's life. And the king is so grateful and is indebted to Mordecai for standing up and protecting his life. Now this leads us into chapter 3. And at this point in the story, we're introduced to this man named Haman that we had talked about earlier. And he's growing in power and popularity and ends up becoming the king's right-hand man. And the king is so impressed by him that he decides to decree that anyone who comes in contact with him must bow before him in reverence and respect. Now, as we learned a few months ago in the book of Daniel, the Jewish people will not bow before anyone besides their God out of respect and loyalty to, their, to God. And so Mordecai, out on the streets, and many of the other Jews refuse to bow before Haman. And as you can imagine, it sounds like everyone had quite the temper back in the day. (laughs) Haman got really angry about this. So angry that he decides and realizes that it's because he's Jewish that maybe we could just wipe out this whole race. And that would solve the problem. So he goes to the king and has a decree made to kill all the Jews on a particular day. This leads us into chapter 4, where this, this is a really frightening problem for Mordecai and Esther. Nobody knows that Esther is a Jew, and they have to hatch a plan to save their people. The problem is that Esther can't just walk up to the king and tell him her problems. First of all, he doesn't know she's Jewish, and second of all, you're not allowed to approach the king in that way during that time. So during their conversation of trying to figure out what to do, Mordecai says something to Esther that has stood out to me for many, many years. In chapter 4, verse 14, he says, For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. 
And she responds by fasting and praying and asking the people around her and her friends and family to fast and pray with her. And she responds by saying, if I perish, I perish. Pretty amazing. So in chapter 5, we see that Esther and Mordecai had decided that Esther's going to host two different banquets, inviting the king and Haman to come. And the first night, she decides she's not going to say anything about this decree to kill all of her people. She's simply just going to have dinner with them. And so they go to the banquet, and as they're leaving the banquet, Haman walks out onto the street, and once again, Mordecai will not bow before him. And he is angrier than ever, probably a little drunk, and decides to have a a stake created to have him impaled upon the next day. You know, normal things that would happen. And then we have the king leaving the banquet, and he goes home, and he's laying in bed, tossing and turning, can't sleep, and decides to ask for somebody to read the royal chronicles to him. And as they're reading the royal chronicles to him, he's reminded that this man named Mordecai had saved his life by telling him about the the people conspiring to kill him. So the craziest thing happens. The next morning, Haman comes in, ready to ask the king, to decree to kill Mordecai on the stake that he had created. And the king comes in wanting to honor this man named Mordecai because he saved his life. And what happens is the king wins out, and Haman, the one who hates Mordecai, ends up walking around with Mordecai on a horse, honoring him throughout the city. Pretty crazy plot twist right there. Then we head into chapter 7. The second banquet happens where Esther invites Haman and the king, and she stands up with great boldness with her life on the line and tells the king that not only is she of Jewish descent, but Haman has put a decree in place to kill not only her, but all of her people. And this infuriates the king, and he is so angry that he ends up asking for Haman to be impaled on the stake that was created for Mordecai. Pretty crazy. Are you tracking with me? It's quite the story. So now that the problem is taken care of in terms of Haman wanting to kill the Jews, we lead into chapter 8 where we see the only problem is that the king can't reverse these decrees that he puts in place. He can't reverse the decree that was put in place to kill the Jewish people. And so, again, Esther and Mordecai have to come together and create a plan to save the people. And so they decide to ask for a counter-decree that tells the Jewish people that they can defend themselves on the day that they're meant to be killed. So they can do anything they need to keep their lives saved. And so Mordecai ends up being elevated to sit beside the king. And when the day comes that the Jewish people are meant to be killed, they not only defend themselves, but they actually end up killing all of Haman's family and everyone who plotted to destroy them. And so this takes us to the conclusion of this book. In chapters 9 through 10, Esther and Mordecai decree an annual two-day feast called Purim that celebrates the Jewish deliverance from destruction. And the cool thing is that this um, celebration is still celebrated every year. And it is, the Jewish people celebrate it, and Esther and Mordecai are an important part of their history. The book ends with an epilogue sharing that Mordecai is elevated to second in command. He takes Haman's place. And it shares about his glory and splendor and what Esther and Mordecai accomplished. I would say that's a pretty big plot twist. Here's the thing. The story in itself is actually pretty fascinating. There's a lot of twists and turns and cool things that are happening and just things that you wouldn't expect. But what I want to show you is that there's something really cool about this book of the Bible. 
the whole book of Esther is actually written in something called a chiasm. And a chiasm is a brilliant literary device in which words, grammatical constructions, or concepts are repeated in reverse order. And I promise I'm trying not to take you back to English class, so track with me. It's pretty cool. So, for example, John F. Kennedy's speeches were chock full of rhetoric, and he actually used this idea of chiasms to get his point across in a unique way. And so I'm going to give you a few examples to get us having an idea of what we're looking for here. So an example would be when he says, let us never, uh, never negotiate out of fear, but let us never fear to negotiate. You see how those two things mirror each other? Here's another example. Mankind must put an end to war, or war will put an end to mankind. You see how we see those reflections happening here? See, JFK used these chiasms because they allowed him to persuade his audience and leave a tremendous impact on those who were listening. And the crazy thing is, in the book of Esther, we don't just see this in different passages within the book. The entire book of Esther is actually written in a chiasm. And so we're actually going to be showing you on the screens what is happening here. So in, in chapter 1 and 2, we see that we are celebrating the king's greatness. The king has a feast and is having these decrees put out. And Esther and Mordecai, they hear that conspiracy and they end up saving the king. Now in the last two chapters of the book, we see we're now not celebrating the king. We're celebrating Mordecai's greatness. And, we're and Mor Mordecai and Esther are the ones who are having these feasts and decrees. And Esther and Mordecai save the Jewish people. Do you see how those two things mirror each other? Now it gets even cooler. If we move into the second section, chapter 3, we see Haman's elevation, edicts, and banquets. And in chapter 8, we see Mordecai's elevation, edicts, and banquets. It's supposed to say Mordecai, not Haman. I'm sorry about that. Now if we move down to chapter 4 and 5, we see Esther and Mordecai make the plan for those banquets to save the Jewish people. And Esther hosts her first banquet. Now in chapters 7 and 8, we actually see Esther hosting that second banquet and Esther and Mordecai making a plan to, to reverse the edict. Do you see how it's mirroring itself all the way through? Now here's the coolest part. The center of the book, in chapter 6, we see the biggest plot twist of them all. We see Haman's plan to kill Mordecai, that moment where he wants him impaled upon a stake, is sidelined by the king's demand to honor Mordecai. Haman is humili humiliated and Mordecai is honored. Pretty crazy. And that is a really cool way to look at that book. So all of this culminated in the center of the book and created a, a pivot or a plot twist and to me, this is the prime example of a dark horse story. The unexpected, the lowly person is given the opportunity and the favor to rise in a time of need. What a powerful story of bravery, boldness, and doing what is right. Esther was an orphan of Jewish descent in exile. She literally had all the cards stacked against her. Yet God gave her and her uncle Mordecai the opportunities and the favor to save her people. When I look at this book and how it's structured, it's a beautiful way of illustrating how God is working and moving even when we don't see it in all of the circumstances. It makes me wonder how often we are unaware of how God is moving and working in our lives. I mean, just think about this story again. 
Esther had no idea that being elevated to becoming queen would give her the opportunity or the, the, the chance to save her people from annihilation. That comment that Mordecai says in chapter 4, verse 14 is very powerful. He says, And who knows but that you have come to this royal position for such a time as this. Another version of this verse says, maybe you were born for such a time as this. What if we said the same thing about our own lives? What if we thought that we were created and born for this very moment in history? Would we live differently? Would we dream more? Would we take our faith seriously? I mean, come on, think about it. What would this mean, and how would we go about our days? Would we be more keenly aware of the opportunities for God to work through us and in us, in every circumstance and everything we face? Would we begin our days with a prayer for God to use us? Would we be drawn to know the voice of God more clearly and intimately? And going one step further, what if we started to see everyone around us in this vein? What if we began to see our children as people created by God for this very moment? Would we take more seriously how we raise them? Would we pray bold prayers over their lives and their futures, not afraid of the next generation, but instead believing that they are called and worthy and beautiful, even though they may be very different than us? I don't know if you need to hear this, but I will be the one to say it. You are not an accident. You have purpose, and God created you. And despite what you have told yourself or what you have been told by others, I just feel like there are so many of us that are just missing out on what God has planned and created us for because we're insecure, we're complacent, and we're comfortable. The thing about being a dark horse is that it doesn't necessarily matter what the people around you see you as or how you see yourself. It's about how God sees you. It's about what he can do in your life. He is the one writing the story, the comeback, the breakthrough, the story of boldness and courage. He is the one who elevates and gives you a chance to make a difference, to have purpose. And you have a choice to make. And I would argue that it's probably one of the most important choices that you'll make in your entire life. And it's this. Are you willing to live with purpose? Are you willing to believe within yourself that God created you for such a time as this, for this moment of history? Maybe you have a hard time believing this because you feel insecure or have low self-esteem, and it's hard for you to believe in yourself. Or maybe you look at your past or even how you're living today, and it's hard to visualize how God could redeem or use this circumstance that you're in. Maybe you have had this desire within you, but you haven't acted on it, and you don't know how to move forward. Living with purpose means living a life with open hands. It's a life filled with trust 
and connection to God, available and open to anything that God wants to unfold in your life. Trusting that even if you don't see it yet, or even if you have a hard time believing it, God wants to use you for a powerful purpose. You see, Esther and Mordecai were ready and willing to make a difference, no matter the cost. Their trust and bravery is still celebrated today. What a legacy to leave. And it begs the question of what kind of legacy do you want to leave? As I was wrapping up this message, God kept giving me this picture, this vision of people walking around with their heads down, just looking at what's in front of them. And I just felt like he was pointing out to me that many of us are so focused on what's happening right now, in this moment, that we don't even look up and realize that God is calling us to an abundant life of blessing and a chance to reach out and care for the world around us. I think back to those moments as a teenager, and I think back to when I began to read the story of Esther, and I just really had no idea how my life would unfold. I had no idea where I'd end up, the kids I'd have, the husband I'd have. I had no idea that I was going to go into ministry or even be with you here today. And even today, if I'm being completely honest, I don't know what God's up to. <laughs> I don't know how God wants to use me and then moving forward and how my life is going to continue to unfold. But I look at my three young kids and I look at my husband and I just pray that we would fulfill the purpose that God created us for. I just think about how easy it is to get up in the morning, rush to get the kids ready, get dressed, take the kids to school or drop them off at, to be watched, get to work, get your work done, go back, pick them up, go home, have dinner, get them ready for bed, and sit down and call it a day. <laughs> And I know that everyone is in that season right now, but we can all kind of picture that rat race or even just getting into the motions of living our day over and over again. And I just think about how we can live differently than, than that. And in the midst of our daily tasks, we can ask God to use us to be his hands and feet to the world around us, that I can disciple my children to do the same by living it out in my own life. And this is what I want to leave you with today. Psalms 139 says, For you are created in, in, in my inmost being. You are knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, and I know that full well. Jeremiah 1.5, For I formed you in the womb. I knew you before you were born. I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. Ephesians 2.10, For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. You were created for more. Would you be willing to look up, take your eyes off the grind or the things that are distracting you and just realize that God created you for a purpose? And it's not always about arriving and understanding exactly what that purpose is. I don't know what mine is. It's about constantly living a life with hands open, a life open, willing to be used by him in whatever way he sees fit. Allowing for him to unfold a fulfilling life of serving him. I want to invite you to take a moment with me right now in reflection. 
And if you're willing and ready, I want you to take a time as we're praying to tell God that you believe that he created you. And if you're willing to tell him that you want to live it out, that you're willing to surrender the plans, the things that are important to you to him, because you'd rather have a life of purpose and fulfillment that comes through knowing him. Would you pray with me? God, right now, I just want to pray for everyone who's in this room, who's watching online, that you would place an urgency within our hearts, an urgency to know you and to hear you and to be guided by you, to believe within the depths of our heart that you created us for such a time as this, that the chaos and the turmoil and the brokenness of the world around us needs us to live for you. The world needs who you created us to be. And God, I just pray that we would surrender the control, the insecurity, the fear, the doubt to you and that we would live our lives trusting you, that we would get to know you more intimately, that we learn to hear your voice and your guiding voice that wants to show us which way to go, which step to take, who to care for. I thank you, Lord, that you love us enough to give us purpose, to give us fulfillment, to give us chances to be a part of your plan, that we don't just live a life to live it, and call it a day, but we get a chance to have a stake in what you've created. And I thank you for that. And I just pray boldness, courage, power over the people in this room and those who are watching online, Lord. I thank you for what you're doing, and I just pray that we get to be the hands and feet of you wherever we go. In your name we pray. Amen. 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 What a